This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. When we speak about current intellectual conversation, frontline theological and cultural issues, and the people who are shaping them, it's hard to imagine anyone who fits those categories better than Peter Berger. For many years, he has been one of the most influential sociologists in America. As a matter of fact, he is one of the most significant international intellectuals when it comes to sociology, secularization, and the future of religious conviction in the world. He is now Professor Emeritus of Religion, Sociology, and Theology at Boston University, where for many years he directed the Institute on Culture, Religion, and World Affairs. He had previously taught at the New School for Social Research at Rutgers University and at Boston College. His writings are not only voluminous, they are incredibly influential. In 1992, Professor Berger was awarded the Manus Sperber Prize, presented by the Austrian government, for significant contributions to culture. When I look back at my own intellectual pilgrimage and development, it's clear to me that the influence of Peter Berger has intersected with my own thinking at many times. He has influenced me and caused me to think, sometimes I'm sure, what he would not necessarily want me to think. But that's the way intellectual engagement works. An author writes a book. A reader reads it. A mind is shaped. Minds meet. And the conversation continues. My honor today is to invite you to think in public as I have this conversation with Professor Peter Berger. Peter Berger is one of the best-known sociologists and intellectuals in the world today. He has influenced successive generations through his writings, books, and speaking, especially on the issue of secularization and what it means. He writes from inside the Christian community and understanding the larger world of sociology, but he's also able to speak with a particular expertise that has world renown to the questions that so many of us are trying to figure out today, having to do with the placement, the intellectual placement of Christianity in the modern world. Peter Berger, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. For many years, you've been at Boston University, and your books have been so influential. I remember The Sacred Canopy as one of the, the earliest of, uh, of your books that I read, but have followed through so many others. And your writings also in a, in a journal like First Things, when you wrote the, the article, Secularization Falsified. I want to step back for a moment and say that if you've been known for anything in particular, you know, I think most people would immediately come up with the idea of secularization. Can, can you just kind of help us to understand the origins of secularization theory? Well, it's a, it's a rather uh, heavy term. I don't know if it's that much of a theory. I mean, it's basically an assumption that's been around for a long time, that as the world becomes more modern, it becomes more secular, that is, less religious. And when I started out my career as a sociologist, particularly as a sociologist of religion, I shared what was a very broad consensus among scholars and historians, social scientists, and many theologians. I mean, they didn't like the idea that the world is becoming more secular, but they thought it was a fact. Well, it took me about 20 years or so to realize that this was a mistake. Uh, I would say secularization theory has been massively falsified, and with one or two interesting exceptions, the world today, including the United States, is, is very religious. And secularists are a minority in most of the world. Well, the whole issue of secularization had, had really become kind of a, uh, a an absolute orthodoxy amongst the sociologists writing in the field. I've tried to follow that literature. And in terms of rethinking the whole secularization theory, 
You've offered, I think, the most in- incredibly helpful insights, especially when you go back to that uh, that issue you said with two exceptions. And in your writings, you suggested that even though the secularization theory didn't quite work out the way that its uh, its early originators thought, the the pattern has been pretty standard as as they had indeed expected in two places. One of them geographic, you mentioned Western Europe, and the other one more uh, sociological, you mentioned the intellectual elites, even in this country. Yeah. How did that come to happen? Well, the European situation is extremely interesting. I mean, exceptions are always interesting. And um, there are a number of other sociologists of religion who have come to very much the same conclusions. To talk about Europe in a moment, I wrote a book together with a very prominent British sociologist, uh, Grace Davy, who's also, by the way, a committed Christian, but that has nothing to do with the sociological analysis of the situation. And uh, we wrote a book, uh, came out a couple of years ago, called uh, uh, Religious America, Secular Europe, question mark. And we tried to answer the question you asked. Why? How did it come about? Well, no important historical event is a single cause. But we came up with seven or eight causes uh, which explain, I think, the situation. Now, I don't think we want to go into this right now, but uh, it's not a dark mystery. We can understand what happened and why America is different from Europe. As to the uh, international intelligentsia, uh, these are the children of the Enlightenment in many ways, and the Enlightenment mostly was very skeptical of religion. So these are not uh, you know, strange mysteries. They are subject to research and analysis and uh, explanation. Well, when you look to the intellectual elites in the United States, you mentioned that they're actually more like Europeans than they are, I guess, many of their their neighbors right uh, in the suburbs. Yes. And I would say I'm I'm not a historian. I don't know when this began, probably in the 1930s. But certainly since World War II, the American intelligentsia has become Europeanized, uh, including the secularity, which is part of what I would call the European cultural package. Uh, most of America is not uh, secular at all. Uh, it's, it's strongly religious, with probably the evangelical community being the most uh, dynamic uh, uh, part of the religious world in this country. Now, the whole idea of secularization basically pointed to the uh, the, the becoming of a, the society is becoming more secular as a result of industrialization, the Enlightenment. Uh, uh, urbanization and all the rest. Well, well those things did happen. Urbanization, uh, the, the information revolution and all the rest. Yes. So why was it, you think, that, for instance, the United States as a culture was not so secularized as was expected? Well, one uh, look, I mean, things like urbanization, I mean, modernity in general does lead to a change in the role of religious institutions uh, in the sense that certain functions which uh, the churches used to have are no longer performed by the churches. Take a very simple example. In the Middle Ages, monasteries uh, were the main places where travelers could spend the night in safety. Uh, well, that is no longer interesting. I mean, there's no, nobody in his right mind would want the, I don't know, the Southern Baptist Convention to compete with Sheraton in building hotels all across the country. So if that's secularization, yes, there is a division of functions. Uh, churches now uh, do not perform certain functions that they used to. But that doesn't mean that people become less religious, either in belief or practice. 
Um, but, but that is exactly what many people had expected. So it, it was something I think you would admit of a surprise to many sociologists that it did not happen here as was expected. Yeah, and sociologists, like other people, don't like to look at things that contradict their <laughs> their assumptions. Yes. So there's been a lot of resistance to the to the kind of position I would now uh, maintain. Though I'm not the only one; there are other people. Grace Davy, for example, whom I mentioned a moment ago, this British sociologist, has been very strong on on, on the falsification of secularization theory. It but is not. At, Go ahead, go ahead. No, it is not often, uh, probably, that we read a sociological text and, uh, and and find something that's just on its face humorous. But I'll tell you, your retelling of this uh, longitudinal study that had been done about the relative religiosity of cultures, and you suggested that uh, it was discovered that the Swedes were the, the least religious as measured by this uh, particular instrument, and uh, the citizens of the nation of India were the most religious. And, and then out of the blue, you, you just uh, summarize this by saying that America – is, uh, is, is, is a mass of Indians ruled over by an elite of Swedes. Yeah, well, that's, I think, the most quoted sentence I ever uttered, and it's, it's a fun way of looking at it. I mean, uh, uh, Sweden and other European countries, but Sweden is very secularized. I mean, sort of like minus 2% of Swedes believe in God. I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating. Yes. And India is an intensely religious country. I mean, you take three steps in India, and you stumble across four Hindu gods. So one way of looking at the American situation, we have a strongly Indian, in quotation marks, population with a cultural elite that's very Swedish. And I think much of the history of the United States since, I would say since 1963, the Supreme Court decision on prayer in the public schools, much of that history, including political history, has been the, the, the Indians becoming increasingly annoyed at the Swedes, and this has huge political ramifications. Absolutely. It, it's a fun but useful way of looking at it. Well, it, it certainly is uh, it's not only a quotable quote, it's one of those incisive observations that changes the way people look at a reality, and it, it gives us a category with which to explain this. Earlier in, in my life, when I first encountered your writings, it came at about the same time that many evangelicals were discovering the category of worldview and the understanding of, of how the mind seizes upon certain structures of thought in order to, to make sense out of everyday life and, uh, and from which to, uh, to be about the business of interpreting the world. Mm-hmm. You and your writings have used a category that I found very helpful, and that's the category of plausibility structures. Could you play that out a bit for us? Yeah, it's a term I invented, which I'm rather fond of. I think it's a cute term. Uh, Look, I mean, what I mean, actually, it's rather simple. What it means is that beliefs become plausible if they are supported by the people around us. We are all social beings. We were created as social beings. And uh, much of what we think about the world depends on support by important people with whom we live. That's what I call plausibility structure. And religion is no exception to this. So it would be very difficult to be a Catholic in a Tibetan village and be difficult to be a Buddhist in a Catholic village in the south of Italy. Uh, That's what I mean by plausibility structure. And one of the things you mention about our current environment is that pluralism is now just a fact. And it's a pluralism of ideologies and worldviews, indeed a pluralism of plausibility structures, and you suggest that one of, the, one of the, the issues that is brought with modernity is a lowering of the walls between different worldviews and, uh, and different plausibility structures such that 
it, it becomes more and more difficult for communities to isolate themselves from other worldviews. Yes. And look, I mean, I would say where we were wrong, we thought modernity leads to secularity. That was a mistake. It may, like in Europe, but it doesn't have to. Uh, what modernity, I think, necessarily leads to is plurality. Uh, people live surrounded by other people who live differently, believe differently. And that's a big challenge to religious traditions. But it's a different challenge from the ch- what we thought was the challenge of secularity. And that means for the individual, since he has all these things around him, different views, different worldviews, he must choose. And religious affiliation increasingly ceases to be taken for granted, and it's dependent on an individual's decision, his choices. Now, I think evangelicals should have very little difficulty with this, because I've written recently an article where I'm not evangelical, I'm a Christian, I'm a Lutheran, but uh, I have some problems with evangelicals. But uh, what I wrote recently, it's the most modern religion around, because at the very center of the evangelical understanding of the Christian faith is an act of personal decision. You can't be born a Christian, you have to be born again as a Christian. And that's a matter of decision. That's very, very modern. And um, so I think evangelicals should have very little difficulty with that kind of analysis. I think I came to terms with your analysis of this uh, years ago as a seminarian when I picked up your book, The Heretical Imperative. And uh, I assumed it was a book about theological heresy. I, I then came to understand that you were using the word heresis, uh, uh, the word for choosing, to suggest that oh, yeah. you, you basically, in a modern age, must choose your own identity. And that includes your uh, religious conviction as well. So this is something of a continuation of that argument you made decades ago. Yes, I, and uh, as you say, heretical uh, didn't mean heresy in the theological sense. It meant you have to make a choice, and that's an imperative. You very difficult to avoid. Peter Berger has given so much thought to this over the last several decades that if you're actually reading in the field of sociology, whether it's religious sociology or, or in a more secular context, you simply can't avoid the magnitude and the influence of his thought. When I come back, I'm going to ask Peter Berger about the book that he's recently co-authored with Anton Zederfeld, In Praise of Doubt. We'll be right back with Thinking in Public. You know, talking with Peter Berger about secularization theory must be what it would have been like to talk with Henry Ford about making cars. This is the man who was present at the beginning, as the theory of secularization was really framed in its dominant 20th century framework. And you know, we look back at that, and most of us realize that the world didn't turn out like those theorists thought it would, at least not everywhere, all at once. Peter Berger's lived long enough and thinks honestly enough to rethink those things and to come back and keep thinking with us. When I come back to this conversation in just a moment, I'm looking forward to talking to Peter Berger about how his mind has changed and how our minds might change as well. It's a signal human achievement to have written a book, to have had it published, and then, to the gratitude of any author, to have had it read. Few authors or scholars have had the opportunity that has been enjoyed by Peter Berger to have written so many books that have not only been written and published and read, but have influenced others and spawned an intellectual industry of sorts. In his new book, Peter Berger, along with co-author Anton Zetterveld, has written In Praise of Doubt, How to Have Convictions Without Becoming a Fanatic. It's the kind of book that, well, just from the cover, I would have to buy it and read it. 
And then to see Peter Berger's name on it, that just clinches the deal. In looking at the book, I want to draw Peter Berger's attention as my guest today to a statement that he and his co-author make on page 25. Modernity pluralizes. Modernity institutionalizes. Another way of putting this, modernity relativizes. Professor Berger, this word relativity, or or certainly in the context of moral relativity, has become something of a great uh, concern and uh, sometimes even an obsession of American evangelicals. Can you play that out a bit for us? Well, what I mean by what we mean in this book about relativization is that uh, religious and moral beliefs, worldviews in general, are no longer taken for granted. Uh, One has to choose, as you pointed out a few minutes ago. Uh, That is uh, an uncomfortable development, but I don't think it is something that should trouble Christians particularly, not only evangelicals, whom I, I argued a very modern faith, but all Christians. And look, if you look at, uh, take in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul visited Athens, and he saw all these temples to different gods, um, our time is not the first time that there was pluralism. And I don't see why we should be troubled by what was the world in which uh, Paul lived and preached. Well, I understand that certainly in terms of mission, but but on the preceding page, before the, the text I just read, you point out the fact that in uh, late modernity, moral pluralization is actually a, a greater source of, uh, of social discord and, and of controversy yes. than religious polarization. And you use the issue, for instance, of abortion, and, and then you ask a question, which I, I, I think is so absolutely pointed. You say this, but can I have a friendly cup of coffee with a neighbor whom I consider to be a murderer or a pervert or an advocate of murder or perversion? Now, few people would frame our debates over, for instance, abortion and homosexuality quite so pointedly, but I think you really raise the issue that many of us are going to have to be thinking so seriously about in decades to come. Well, it's uh, it's obviously a very difficult issue, and there are very strong opinions on both sides. Uh, what uh, Zetafeld and I suggested was you, you take two extremes. I mean, one is relativism, which is the embrace of relativization celebration of relativity, which means anything goes. I mean, uh, you uh, you talk to a cannibal on a television show and you're not gonna, you don't make any judgment, you just want to have a friendly conversation. Well, that's, that's impossible. It would destroy society. Uh, and on the other hand, you have uh, fundamentalism, uh, which I would define not in theological terms because there are secular fundamentalisms, which is any attempt to restore the taken-for-granted quality of a worldview. And that's a very difficult enterprise, and I don't think one should embrace it. And uh, the the book that I wrote with Zederfeld came out of an earlier project of the Research Institute, which until last year I directed at Boston University, and it was called Between Relativism and Fundamentalism. And we had a group of Christian uh, thinkers, including a couple of evangelicals, Os Guinness, whom you probably know, was one of them, who from the point of view of different Christian traditions said, well, one can be have Christian convictions uh, without being a fundamentalist in the sense which we defined it, trying to, again, have Christianity be the taken-for-granted faith of the entire society. As you lay out your, your current understanding, as, uh, as best reflected in this latest book, you mentioned this, uh, this hypertension over moral pluralization, and, uh, and then you point to modernity as the, the fact of all of these plural worldviews. 
And you, you point out that the secularization theory that, uh, that you had promoted uh, and, uh, and helped to formulate earlier now needed to be reformulated, rethought, such that modernity didn't necessarily produce secularity, but it did produce pluralism. Yes. Then you get to a category that, as an evangelical theologian, I found absolutely invaluable, a- a- absolute gold. And you point out that the greatest danger and uh, or, or the, the threatening reality to, uh, to communities of faith is, uh, is what you called cognitive contamination. Can, can you play that out for us as well? Well, by that uh, I mean that as we talk to people, as people talk to each other, they influence each other. And it's very difficult to have a worldview which is sheltered uh, against or any kind of conversation with other people. Uh, cognitive contamination, again, I, as you kindly observed, I tend to be humorous as a sociologist. It's, it's, a, it's a nice term. Uh, it's like catching a cold from somebody. If you, if you, if you kiss somebody who has a cold, you're likely to get the cold. If you have a conversation with a Buddhist, you're likely after a while to think, hmm, maybe he's got a point. That's what I mean by cognitive contamination. And one can deal with this. I mean, it's not a terrible disaster, but it makes life a little more difficult than if being a Christian is as natural as, I don't know, uh, being allergic to milk or something. Well, as a Christian theologian, I would have to say that uh, the issue of cognitive contamination uh, probably cuts both ways. There are many issues in which it is good that one's worldview becomes contaminated, uh, to use your category, with the knowledge that comes from others. We've learned a great deal from each other. We've learned a great deal about the world, about uh, about about human cultures and all the rest by uh, by contact with the other. But I'm speaking to you as a, an evangelical Christian, and, and you have studied us for a long time. And, and as you would understand, one of our concerns is how to maintain uh, very clear convictional truth claims— and uh, to pass them down to our children and the generations coming without loss. And your category of cognitive contamination means that our job is actually a lot more difficult than many of us had, uh, had banked on. Yes, I mean, sure. I mean, look, if you take, if you take American evangelicalism, uh, I remember I, I, shortly after I came to this country, I was drafted, and I served my military career, such as it was in Georgia. And at that time, there were communities in the Deep South where being a Baptist was as natural as, uh, I don't know, being a man or a woman or or, or um, having blonde hair. Um, uh, it was taken for granted, and that's very rare now. I mean, there may be some such communities, but not many. And that means that being an evangelical or being any other kind of, of uh, faith uh, is in constant conversation with alternatives. Now, as I said, I think that's healthy. And I think it helps to understand what faith means. Look, I'm a Lutheran, and I, I like the term sola fide uh, in, the, in the letter to the Romans, that we are saved by faith. Now, Luther added the word alone, which many have criticized him for, by faith alone. But I think when we say faith, we immediately mean that uh, it's not knowledge. We're not certain of it. We have to, it's an act of, of betting, of, of choosing. Um, and uh, I think that's very good. And the modernity, in a way, helps us to understand what that means. This issue of cognitive contamination, uh, let, let me ask you specifically, do you see it as becoming more acute uh, as generations move forward? In other words, is it likely that our children and grandchildren will uh, will face even, well, 
uh, steeper uh, pressures, uh, uh, greater pressures uh, toward this kind of cognitive contamination? Probably, because the media of intercultural, interreligious communication are becoming more and more pervasive. I mean, the Internet is a, uh, is a celebration of pluralism. And I think the only way to withstand this is to create strong communities which provide the plausibility structure for a particular worldview. And that's not an impossible task. Oh, indeed it's not. We, we, we as evangelicals, certainly have to hope that it's not. Christians must hope that it is not an impossible task. You have had the intellectual honesty, and uh, I, I appreciate that, to go back and, and look at, at the writings and theories and uh, – and points you had propounded and uh, the, the lessons you had taught in, in years past and come back and rethink them. Your, your article in First Things several years ago on secularization falsified was one of the most, I think, uh, uh, clear examples of intellectual honesty and also of a mind moving forward. You have seized upon certain ideas and questions. And uh, when, when I have the experience of reading your books, I feel like I'm reading your mind at work as you are you, – you're, you're looking at a question and, and – uh, and taking it seriously and taking it apart and putting it back together. At this point in your life, having written so much, uh, what is the, the kind of question right now that, uh, that really captures your imagination? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I've written so many books, I'm not in the process of writing another one right now. I'm, uh, what concerns me is, is the, the shape, in terms of religion, the shape of the Christian community in the modern world, and one, you mentioned one, what occupies me, one thing I'm very interested in is, you know, the demographic center of Christianity is moving from Europe and North America to what we now call the Global South. And it's very different in the Global South. Christianity in Africa, in Latin America, in parts of Asia is very different from North America and Europe. And that's, I think, a big issue that's coming toward us. How are we going, we in the North, so to speak, how are we going to cope with Christianity in the southern part of the world? An enormous issue, very interesting sociologically, but also interesting theologically. Absolutely. I want to ask you one other thing as I have you in this conversation. Uh, at various points in your career, in your writings, you have made what uh, what amount to predictions about the future. I'm wondering, as you look to the future now, uh, armed with all of the thinking that has brought you to this moment, what do you think will surprise us, I mean, as American Christians, in terms of how you see society developing in the years ahead? Well, I've thought about this. People ask about this. I've learned that most predictions turn out to be false uh, by social scientists. But look, I mean, if I look at American society and the place of religion in it, if things continue more or less as they are, in other words, no huge catastrophe, economic or military or whatever. Uh, I don't foresee any great changes. I don't see American society becoming much more secular um, uh, unless there is some kind of disaster of some sort. Um, and Europe probably is not going to become much more religious, uh, again, unless something dramatic happens. So I don't see any being on the brink of any huge change. But, you know, futurologists love the term uh, surprise-free future. In other words, if nothing dramatic changes, how do right. we predict what's now, ha you know, assuming present trends continue? Well, that can be a dangerous uh, assumption. 
and we can think of all kinds of very unpleasant surprises, maybe a few pleasant ones, which would change the game. It is a great honor to speak with you today, Professor Berger, and uh, one of the, the most important duties of the Christian life is gratitude. And uh, this conversation affords me the opportunity to express gratitude to you, and not just uh, for myself, but for the many others who've been so influenced by your writings. And uh, as you know, as an author, the different readers will gain different impressions and uh, and collect different intellectual tools. But I want to thank you for your contribution and tell you that uh, that my intellectual debt to you is uh, is huge, as uh, your writings have been so influential in my understanding of trying to grapple with this reality. And so on behalf, uh, first of all, of my own voice and then of many others, I want to thank you for your contribution and especially thank you for joining me today and thinking in public. Well, thank you. Very kind of you. One of life's greatest privileges is the meeting of minds. The meeting of intellect and rationality, of reason and thinking. The meeting of book and reader. The meeting of, well, a conversation. I've enjoyed this conversation with Peter Berger. And even as his books have made me think, helped me think, so has this conversation. And isn't it interesting to see a mind at work thinking? I can pretty much remember where I read certain books. Maybe you're the same way. You can remember when and where you read a book that changed the way you look at the world, changed the way you you think about an important doctrine, changed the way you understand a reality. I first started reading Peter Berger when I was a seminary student, and I saw him footnoted in a text, and I was hooked. Now, as you look at the writings of Peter Berger and you look at his theories, you're looking at a mind in motion. And Peter Berger's been honest enough to even talk with us about how his mind has been in motion. But at every point, he has offered a a very authoritative voice in terms of his academic field of sociology about the matters of his concern. As I have read Peter Berger, I haven't read him as a sociologist. I've read him as a theologian very interested in sociology, as a theologian who understands that theology is not done in an ivory tower of isolation. It is done in a social context, and whether we recognize it or not, and if we do not, it is to our danger, theology is a social discipline. It takes place in the society and in the community, first of all, of a church, but also in a larger cultural context that has to be taken into account. Furthermore, I read Peter Berger as a Christian, a Christian concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with wanting persons to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And in a context of, well, the modern age, that is a very complex equation. Now, one of the helpful things Peter Berger said in the conversation we just had is that Christianity is really well-armed for this kind of situation. After all, he took us back to Acts chapter 17 and Paul at Mars Hill and said that the experience and reality of pluralism is really nothing new for the Christian church. Now, as I look at the intellectual tools I've gathered from Peter Berger, I want to tell you that I've done so even as I've been in, well, several points of disagreement with him. After all, first of all, there are some methodological disagreements. He's, he's a sociologist. I'm a theologian. We don't necessarily even frame the questions exactly the same way. He's writing as a confessional Lutheran, and he distances himself from evangelicals. Well, I'm an evangelical. And so we have a a meeting of the minds on some issues, and yet an engagement of issues that leads to very profitable and catalytic thinking, on the other hand. Now, when I look at the categories Peter Berger has offered to us, uh, the the critique and the, the structure of secularization theory that he's offered, 
I go back to those things I ask him about, plausibility structures, and I recognize that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ had better give very careful attention to that particular category. We need to make certain that we are aware of the fact that conviction does not exist in a vacuum, that indeed it needs to be reinforced, and the Christian life is made up that way in terms of the devotions of the Christian life, our dependence upon the means of grace and and of the preaching of the word and the the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and baptism, that is all a part of the plausibility structure that helps to maintain and clarify Christian conviction. And of course, remember the social context? Well, for Christians, that is the church. First and foremost, it is the congregation of believers. That congregation had better order itself consciously in order to provide plausibility structures for its, its own members. And I think most pointedly, for its youngest members, those who are likely to be on the front edges of the intersection of the different worldviews, and those who are likely to suffer from the greatest challenge of what Peter Berger has defined in this latest book as cognitive contamination. Every once in a while, someone gets to coin a term. Few people get to coin terms that enter the intellectual parlance quite so repeatedly, has said Peter Berger. The plausibility structures category that is now just part of our common vocabulary is not only sociologists, but philosophers and psychologists and theologians and others consider the same issues. This issue of cognitive contamination, you know, I'll tell you, this one hits me as perhaps one of the most useful intellectual tools evangelicals need to understand and to use in years to come. I had a similar experience reading James Davison Hunter years ago in his book Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation, when he talked about the process of cognitive bargaining, how it is that younger evangelicals then, and by the way, they're, they're middle-aged evangelicals now, in the context of the modern age, were always b- bargaining cognitive concepts uh, as they were under their own intellectual pressures. As a young person went from uh, a, you know, a small town in the Midwest to uh, an Ivy League university, all of a sudden there were pressures to surrender certain issues, convictions, truths, commitments. And that pressure led to a process of cognitive or mental bargaining. You, you bargain, how much can I give up? How much must I maintain? Well, if we don't understand that evangelicals were then and to an even greater degree are now involved in that kind of process and in danger, I would have to say as a theologian, of surrendering the gospel and essential Christian truths without even sometimes even recognizing it, well, then we're going to lose something. If we don't recognize the value of Peter Berger's category here of cognitive contamination, then we will not parent as Christian parents as we ought. We will not teach as Christian teachers must teach. We will not preach as pastors must preach or, or must help form the Christian mind and, and ground the, the Christian's faith in the context of understanding that the pressures of this very late, very modern age are leading many, many people in ways that are invisible and undetected to themselves to bargain away what they otherwise would never surrender and to have contaminated a worldview that can very quickly become less than Christian without intending that that would be the result. Cognitive contamination, I I really gained a lot by how Peter Berger in a way that was uh, reduced to a, a very wise quip, said it's kind of like catching a cold. In other words, worldviews get transmitted in ways that are almost as natural and undetected and, frankly, virtually as viral as a cold. Now, when Peter Berger and Anton Zederveld in their new book, In Praise of Doubt, look at how conviction may 
survive and, uh, and be changed in the modern world. They talk about the pressures of, of pluralism and the relativizing that takes place. They talk about the lowering of the walls between worldviews and intellectual communities. They talk about this cognitive contamination, and they suggest that there are basically two polar opposite responses. On the one hand, what they define as fundamentalism. And they define fundamentalism, not theologically, but sociologically, as an effort to reverse this process of relativization, to, to go back to something of a pre-modern commitment, and just to deny the reality of different cognitive claims and communities around us, different belief systems, different worldviews. Building walls that have been torn down by the modern world, well, that rebuilding of the walls, they would define as fundamentalism. That's their category, and we can understand it. Then they say at the other extreme, there is uh, the modernizing stream that, that, that simply accepts and even celebrates this kind of modernization, this kind of relativization, and, and then goes to the extreme of saying you can't hold to any particular truth claims with any validity or with any cognitive integrity any longer, unless you're just going to admit that you are choosing this and that there is no basic correspondence between your, your truth claims and a larger reality. So as Peter Berger and Anton Zitterveld suggest in this book, you basically have these two polar opposites, fundamentalism that wants to reclaim a certainty before the modern world, and then the modernizers who want to celebrate the loss of everything that the fundamentalists want to hold on to. Now, you don't set up a polarization like that without coming back to offer some kind of middle alternative. That's exactly what they do. The middle alternative they suggest is a posture of doubt. Now, they're writing specifically to a Christian community suggesting that this mode of doubt means that we should hold to certain faith commitments, but hold to them somewhat tentatively. We should not overclaim. Now, this is where I part company with, with these two authors. This is where I am informed by Peter Berger, but quite frankly, as an evangelical theologian, I have to come by and say I am not convinced. To the contrary, even though I do not believe that the fundamentalism that they sociologically define is the right way to go, that denies the relativization around us and, and tries to rebuild an isolated community, I don't want to go back to an isolated community. I don't think that's possible. Our children will not live in isolated communities. They will go to colleges and universities and live in cities and in social contexts where this plurality of worldviews is going to be around them. We cannot rescue our children any more than we can rescue ourselves from this danger of cognitive contamination. But I reject this middle position of doubt as the way to go. As a matter of fact, middle positions theologically almost never work. Whether it's neo-orthodoxy or an attempt to have something between orthodoxy and, and heterodoxy, something between fundamentalism and, and liberalism or modernism, well, these in-between positions seldom hold unless they are very clearly defined in terms of clear, unapologetic, truth claims. And that's where the posture of doubt just doesn't quite work out. I don't think that doubt is a helpful response to the modern challenge. I can see where it would be a good posture for negotiation. I can see where it might lead to a lessening of social controversy and pressure. But I can also see that what it means is eventually the abdication of the kind of truth claims that are absolutely necessary for the Christian gospel for the Christian faith, for the Christian church, and for the Christian life. I'm informed by the writings of Peter Berger. My mind has been shaped in so many ways by the intellectual tools that he has offered not only to me, but to so many around the world. I think that in his reading of the modern age, of the intellectual pressures and sociological patterns in the modern age, he is literally without peer. 
I think in terms of his intellectual integrity to rethink the questions, to look over his long, productive lifespan and see where he was wrong and come back to tell us about it, tell us why, and tell us where he thinks things are going now. I'm very thankful for the conversation. I have to tell you, it was a real honor for me to be in a conversation with someone who has influenced so much of my thinking. At the same time, I want to come back and say, I do not go where he would have us to go. Not in terms of this latest book, and not in terms of his theory about how a Christian community can and might survive in late modernity. I think we have to go back to the future. I'm willing to go back. In fact, I'm eager to go back to Acts chapter 17. But in the midst of that pluralization, we'll note that the Apostle Paul did not suggest a posture of relative doubt. Instead, he spoke out of the full measure of conviction. And based on that apostolic example, that's what I certainly hope to do. That is what I am held accountable to do. And that is what I hope generations of evangelicals to come will do. Or there will be no evangelicals, and there will be no evangelicalism. Wasn't it interesting to hear as Peter Berger was looking to the future that he suggested the big question was about the shift of the center of gravity to the global south? You know, that's where the conversation is likely to get even more interesting as the global south struggles with some of the same questions that we have struggled over the last several decades and in many ways as those Christians in the developing world become the pioneers for what Christianity is going to look like in the 21st century. It gives us a lot to think about, a lot to pray about. And that's something for which we should be thankful. I'm thankful today for the opportunity to have been in conversation with Peter Berger and also with you. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thinking in Public.